Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can gather this morning in freedom, uh, in joy, Lord, and what you've done in our hearts and our lives, uh, the work you're doing in our city, calling people to yourself. And Lord, as we would examine your word this morning, we pray it would touch our hearts and our lives, shape us more and more to be like you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are studying the revelation of Jesus, a series of visions given to John of what is to come, what is uh, already going on in some ways in the world as Christians anticipate Jesus' return. Chapters 4 to 20 have a three series of seven judgments, and we, well, we'll see, especially today as well, but each series ends with the culmination of history, the great day of the Lord, and people have interpreted those visions in various ways. Um, I've suggested that John's looking at the same time frame from Jesus' ascension to his return and asking some key questions. How is God bringing his kingdom? What about the vindication of Christian martyrs? What about the nations repenting, the defeat of evil, etc., etc.? Last week, we looked at the trumpet judgments and that despite these plagues, the nations do not repent. It's just like Pharaoh who did not repent in the Exodus story. And so this, there's this issue where God's judgment alone will not bring people to humble repentance before him. And so the question is, well, what, what will bring the nations to repentance? And like he did during the seven seals cycle, John pauses the action to give an answer, right? So with the seals, the question was, who can stand or endure in the great day of the Lord? And so the action paused, and we saw the sealed messianic army of God's kingdom made from all the nations, which was a fulfillment of Genesis 17 and a fulfillment of Jesus' great commission. These are the ones who can endure in the day of the Lord. They will be rescued through death into God's presence and into his love. And now in the same way with the seven trumpets, the action pauses between the sixth and the seventh, and we get two visions, Revelation 10 and 11, that answer now this new question, what will bring the nations to repentance? And it starts with chapter 10. Chapter 10, John sees a mighty angel. He's standing astride the earth and see with his hand in heaven. He's sort of uniting the three spheres of creation, right? Water, land, and air. And the angel swears that the era of God's long suffering will end when the last trumpet sounds, God's sort of waiting to bring his justice, to try and allow people opportunity to repent and to receive his mercy. He's waiting on that, but that was going to come to an end when the last trumpet sounds and the time of the mystery of God will be revealed, it says in verse 7. And we know from Ephesians 1 20 to 22, the mystery of God is often talked about as God's plan to unite everything under the lordship of Jesus, unite all things in heaven and earth under Christ's lordship. And it also involves the sort of final unrestrained act of God's justice against the injustices of the world. And so the angel comes, announces the end is just about here, and he comes with the open scroll of the Lamb, or the open book, the little book, of the Lamb from chapter 5, which is God's mission to uh, bring forward his kingdom, to reveal to the world what is going to happen through Jesus. And the angel tells John to eat the scroll and then proclaim its message to the nations. It's a callback to the prophet Ezekiel, who was told to do the same thing. 
he was told to eat a scroll. It's a metaphor for how a prophet is, is to ingest the message of, of their prophetic word. They need to get it right into the fiber of their being, so to speak, before they can proclaim it. They need to receive it and then speak it to the people. Ezekiel was told, take the heart of words spoken to him. Take those words to heart. And that's sort of pictured in eating the, eating the scroll or eating the book. So it's like John needs to get this message right into the fiber of his being. He has to eat it, and then he gets to speak the message. But notice the message is bittersweet. And we'll see why pretty straight away um, that it's, there's some good stuff to the message, but it's also difficult. It's a bittersweet message, the message of the open scroll. And so the scroll's contents then are revealed in two symbolic visions in Revelation 11. First, John sees God's temple and the martyrs by the altar. This is the first few verses of chapter 11. And John's told to measure them and set them apart. It's a picture of protection that's drawn from Zechariah 2. But then the outer courts in the city are excluded and they're trampled down by the nations. This is the first vision of the open scroll. So there's different ways to interpret this. Some think it refers to a literal destruction of Jerusalem that either took place in the past. Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. The, the temple was burned down. Um, or uh, maybe a new temple, and that'll take place sometime in the future. But it's also very likely that the image and language of temple is following the New Testament tradition of Jesus and of the apostles in places like 1 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 3 and 1 Peter 2, who all used temple language, new temple, to refer to the people of God, the new covenant people of God, that they were now the new temple. And it's amazing if you trace the temple language through the Bible, how that works. So back in Ezekiel 43, 7, you get promises of God saying, I'm going to come and dwell with you. I'm going to dwell in the midst of my people. And you get verses like Zechariah 2, 10, where he says, I'm going to come and dwell in your midst. Because the temple is the place where God and humanity are to meet, right? That's sort of the idea of the temple. But then that gets fulfilled in a surprising way by Jesus. And you get the familiar passage like John 1, 14, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, or you could, it's literally tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. That's a temple word. You see God's glory in the temple. Then you get passages like John two nineteen, where Jesus says, destroy this temple, meaning his body, and I'll rise it again in three days. And John says, he's talking about his body as the temple. And then after the resurrection, you get passages like John 14, that tell us the Father and the Son are going to make their home in us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I can say that and we can just move on, but let's pause for a minute because that should really, that should really knock our socks off. That the God of all creation wants to come and dwell within you and make you his temple. That's amazing. That's amazing. And then Ephesians 2, 19 and 22 says, We're being joined together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so the t- if the temple's the place where God and humanity meet, now that temple meeting where we encounter the living presence of God is found in a relationship with Jesus and by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives as God abides in us. So as Christians... The New Testament theology moves in such a way that we no longer think of the temple 
as needing a physical building in Israel because the church becomes the temple by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's fulfilled in Jesus as the return of Yahweh to his people and now extending the whole temple metaphor to include the new people of God. Which means that this vision, going back to the vision revelation, is likely about telling Jesus' followers that they are going to likely suffer persecution by the nations, but this is an external defeat. The outer courts are trampled, but they can't take away the true victory of the Lamb. And that's the bittersweet message of the scroll, right? The bittersweet message is that, yes, the sealed international army of the Lamb from Revelation 7 is assured God's protection, there is this sense of spiritual protection. We know as Christians that our lives are secure in Jesus. But there's also the bitter part, which is the motif that there will likely be physical suffering before that end comes. And so it's interwoven that the followers of Christ, because we love Jesus, will likely face persecution and death. The outer area will be trampled, but the inner area is left untouched. And again, with the measuring of the temple, it's a picture from Zechariah of protection. And so that's the bittersweet message of the scroll, that God's kingdom is brought forward as followers of Jesus willingly lay down their lives for their enemies in love, in sacrificial love like Jesus, but knowing that we are kept and held by him for eternity, out the other end of death. Chapter 11 picks up that same bittersweet theme of God's got us, but there's also physical suffering that will likely happen. God appoints two apostles, uh, sorry, two witnesses as prophetic representatives to the nations. This is in verse 3, and then it continues through verse 4 to 13, sort of what happens with, with the, the, the witnesses. And again, different ways to interpret this. Some people think, these are literally, you know, two individual prophets that will sort of show up uh, one day in the future, down the road somewhere. But notice what John calls them in verse 4. He says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord. Lampstands is one of John's clear symbols for the church back earlier in Revelation. And he also, again, the two olive trees is a point back to Zechariah which is a picture of the priestly office of the people of God and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And again, all through Scripture, what are God's people called? Kings and priests, right? We do that all through Exodus. And again, Revelation brings it up as well. It's part of our identity of bearing the image of God and ruling with his character in creation. So again, it's likely, um, again, some people interpret the two witnesses as literal individuals, but it's also very likely that John is picking up... Um, the surprising New Testament fulfillment of the lampstand and olive tree images, and that these are symbols for the whole of the church as the prophetic witness to Jesus. They're called to take up the mantle of Moses and Elijah. That's where you get the, the reference to drought and the reference to, to blood and fire is the, is the, is the callback uh, to Moses and Elijah. And the call for them is to call idolatrous nations back to God. They wear sackcloth, right? symbolize their message of repentance, but they're prophets, which means they're likely going to be rejected. And what happens? They're rejected, right? Sure enough, they're rejected in the great city. It says they're rejected. 
And people interpret the city different ways. John says it's identified spiritually as Sodom and Egypt. Sodom is sort of all about depravity and rebellion, and Egypt is all about the persecution of God's people. Um, But it also seems to be a reference to Jerusalem and the way in which Jesus called Jerusalem the, the people that kill the prophets, right? And there's the part in the Gospels where he's weeping over Jerusalem in Matthew 23 because Jerusalem has this reputation of rejecting God's prophets. The point of all of that, the great city bit, is that it was a, it was a broad term even in John's day, and it can, it can easily stand for any sort of empire that claws after divine glory and just afflicts Jesus' church through history. And then, all of a sudden, verse 7, a horrible beast appears. He's right out of Daniel, chapter 7. And in Daniel 7, the beast represents evil empires and arrogant kings who exalt themselves above God and persecute God's people. And so the beast shows up. He conquers and kills the witnesses. And all the worldly people rejoice and make a new Christmas, right? They exchange gifts because they're no longer called to repentance, But the witnesses' death is short-lived. They're brought back to life. They're vindicated by God before their persecutors. And now what's the end result? The very end, we see in verse 13, And at that hour, this great earthquake, city fell, a bunch of people died of the earthquake, and the rest were terrified. And now what happens? They gave glory to God in heaven. A bunch of them finally do repent which is the question that's being answered in all of this, right? So if these are two individual people, they go to heaven, right? If symbolic, it stands for the resurrection and enthronement of the martyred saints of the church before God, which is Revelation 5. And then what do we get? We get the big earthquake, and we get the day of the Lord from Joel 2. Again, this is the end of the, like the end of the seals, which brings the, kind of the end of the world and Jesus' return. Now we're at the end of the trumpet, so the same thing's happening. The second coming, verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord. And of his Christ, he shall reign forever and ever. Awesome. Jesus begins his unchallenged reign. Then we get a glimpse of what we'll see fleshed out in chapters 21 22. But a glimpse of God's victory, the final victory, and the final healing. And you see that in the words of the elders there as well. Now, that's a lot of info. That's a lot of images and symbols and stuff all at once. But let's just stop for a minute and think about the story so far. Right? Revelation is telling us that God's warning judgments through the seals and through the trumpets do not generate repentance among the nations, right? Just like the Exodus plagues hardened Pharaoh's heart and didn't bring him to repentance. But the lamb conquered his enemies by loving and dying for them. And now the message of the lamb's scroll reveals the mission of the church, of, of his army, of his kingdom. God's kingdom, folks, is revealed as the nations see the church imitating the loving sacrifice of Jesus. How do the nations come to Jesus? It's as the church lives out her mission to live self-sacrificially for our enemies. And just like Jesus, we don't seek to kill our enemies, but to love them and even to die for them. And this is the surprising claim of the message of the open scroll. God's mercy shown through Jesus and shown through his followers is what will eventually bring the nations to repentance even if there's persecution that comes first. And this message is right at the hinge point. We're right at the middle of the book. 
and it, and it sort of shifts gears from here on after. And with that, like I said, the last trumpet sounds, and just like we saw at the end of the seven seal cycle, the world's shaken, and it's the great day of the Lord, and God's kingdom comes, and all of that. But chapters 10 and 11 leave a question hanging, right? Who was the beast who persecuted and killed the Lamb's followers in chapter 11? Who was that? Wait a minute. And how will the whole story turn out? And John's going to flesh that out in the second half of Revelation, which again, we're going to pick up in January in the new year. But the great theme of hope for us, folks, is this. Three things, I think, that I want to say. Maybe four. Human kingdoms do rebel against God. They just do. And when we see nations turning away from righteousness in our day, we should not be surprised. This is what happens. As kingdoms grow in their sinfulness, in their rebellion against God, Daniel tells us they become like beastly empires. And we see that time and time again in world history. You can see that over and over. We saw it in Nazi Germany. We saw it in the Soviet Union. Uh, it's so crucial that we know our history. That happens time and time again. The nations become like beastly empires. So that happens. Human kingdoms do turn away from God. And so we don't put our trust in human kingdoms. We know that they can turn away. And while that should grieve us, it doesn't come as a surprise. But the great hope for us is God will bring his kingdom fully in his time. And when he does, he will vindicate his people when he returns. Those who have given their lives for Jesus will be vindicated. And again, in our time, in this moment in history, we're not necessarily undergoing the threat of physical persecution, but there are people in our congregation and people in Dryden, ministries in Dryden, that are undergoing persecution because they choose to stand for their faith in Jesus. And you may not know that because it may not hit the headlines, but it happens. And it's true. When the church lives for Jesus and chooses to extend the love and grace of Jesus, the fact that we said this morning that it matters that human life is sacred would, for some people, uh, be aroused to say, well, you can't say that. You're against that person's choice to choose to end their lives. And that's just a small example. But there are people currently right now in Dryden who are suffering because of their faith. It may not seem like physical persecution, but it happens. Obviously, it's not the same as what happens in other countries and stuff where people are in jail. I understand. We can't quite equate it the same as what our brothers and sisters are going through in other parts of the world. But it does happen. And we have hope, folks, that God will see us through. It may involve things getting worse before it gets better but it will, in the end, be better. And in the meantime, as we wait for Jesus to return, and we maybe look around and say, man, things are not great, we can say, well, the Bible told us things don't get great. <laughs> in fact, human history tells us we're on this repeated pattern of things not going great, over and over. If I was living in World War II, they totally would have thought it was the end of the world. 
people literally getting killed in gas chambers? It's pretty bad stuff, right? And yet we've come through that, and now we're into a different era. And a similar thing may happen again, and I don't want to brush that off because that's significant. But in the meantime, as we live between the two advents, Jesus' first coming, and as we await Jesus' second coming, we're called to live like Jesus. That's the surprising message of the open scroll. The church is called to live out the love of Jesus even to our enemies. And as we do that, folks, that starts to change people's hearts and actually calls them to repentance, calls them to faith. I don't know if you've ever been in an argument with someone or, or you've confronted someone who's antagonistic towards Jesus or the gospel. You know, getting in a, getting in a fight with them about it is probably not going to win them to Jesus, right? Going the route of plagues and judgment on them probably won't win their hearts, right? But loving them, choosing to engage with them even when they've hurt us, choosing to pray for them, choosing to wish the good of them, even when they seek to conquer us, reveals the love of Jesus in a really practical way. And when that happens, people go, why would you love me? And it starts to open our hearts to repentance. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you have called us at such a time as this, as our world goes through many changes as we're aware of violence and brokenness, as we're navigating this pandemic and thinking about how various governments respond to it. And it's easy to think, oh, it's getting worse out there. Lord, we just take hope today, this morning, knowing that your word tells us that human empires can fall away from you, and that's okay. It's okay because it's not our job to change the course of the human heart. That's your job. Lord, you've called us and planted us here in Dryden at such a time as this. And I just pray this morning for those who are experiencing persecution because of their faith, where they have uh, been called down, where they've met resistance because of wanting to stand for you, Lord. I thank you that you do give us opportunities to stand for you, as much as that's incredibly difficult sometimes. Lord, I pray for your strength and your hand and your peace to be upon each one of us as we are called to live out the mission of your church, to love our enemies, to lay down our lives for our neighbors, to seek and to save those who are lost, to care for those who at Christmas don't have enough in their fridge, to care for those who... Uh, have disabilities and be, are pressured in a society to end their lives. Lord, to care for kids in a different country who need a home to live. And God, I thank you that we've been able to participate and partner with you in these good things as a church family. And Lord, I pray this week as we head towards the season of Advent, as we Think again about how you came into this world. We pray that you would open up the stables in our hearts to receive you afresh. Lord, would you come and make your home in us by the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit. 
And would you send us out today alive and filled with hope because of who you are and what you've done in human history. Jesus, we love you. We pray for our families, those who aren't well, our church leaders, our governments. Lord, would you come alongside and bring wisdom and renewal. Lord, we continue to pray for spiritual renewal in our land at our time. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, bless my friends here today in your name. Amen. Would you stand with me? I'd love to send you with the benediction. Children of God who are loved and forgiven in our Lord Jesus Christ, may you follow the way of Jesus, the crucified and risen Lamb, as you learn to love just as he did and give your lives for the love of others. May we be faithful witnesses to the Lamb that was slain. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. Love you guys. Have a great week. Love to pray with you if you need prayer. Have an awesome week. We'll see you next time. Bless you.